The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Getting early Facebook people to talk to me has proven devilishly difficult, actually. I mean, early, earliest days Facebook people. Still back at Harvard days. There was litigation around this time, as we know. So some people are under gag orders. Others are billionaires now from the things they did during this period. So why talk to some dumb podcaster? So I've had to come at the earliest days of Facebook obliquely for this project by reaching out to people like Matt Britton, who sold some of the first ads to and for Facebook from those earliest days before Facebook raised any big rounds, before the move out to Silicon Valley even. Matt Britton is another digital advertising OG, and he gives us some of the first glimpses ever, I think, of what Facebook was like as a company when it was only months old. Please enjoy. Matt Britton, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it looks like, uh, checking out just your, your LinkedIn, um, you, like me, might have come out of college right into the teeth of the, of the dot-com era and uh, actually started your career by riding the dot-com wave. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, that is accurate. Yep. The, the, the timing of my college graduation was fortuitous in that it was at the beginning of the dot-com boom. Um, it was also not as fortuitous in that very quickly I lived through the first dot-com bust. Um, so I kind of experienced both sides of the equation um, very early in my career and, and definitely taught me a lot, you know, at, at an early age. Uh, can we go into that just, just for a little bit? Um, so uh, sure. what, did, what did you go to college for? Uh, I went to Boston University. Mm -hmm. I went to School for Communications. Um, I was a big nightclub promoter when I was in college uh -huh. and was throwing uh, huge amounts of parties throughout the Boston area because they had such a dense college population. And then what started to happen is a lot of local businesses asked that they could sponsor my parties by putting banners up at the parties or putting a logo on my flyers, et cetera. So it really kind of opened my eyes to maybe I can help these local businesses um, reach college students in other ways. And I ended up starting an agency in my, during my senior year in college uh, called the Magma Group, uh, which was built at first to help local and regional businesses in the Boston area target college students. But then very quickly, um, I saw the bigger opportunity in helping some of these heavily funded dot-com companies target college students. And I ended up building these national networks of student reps to help support these companies 
that were just launching like Yahoo and eBay and Lycos right when they were first starting. Right. You're, I think I, I read that uh, Magma was doing like $5 million in revenue like one year out of college. Yep, and then the next year after that, we were doing none <laughs> because all of, all of our clients were, you know, venturefunded.com. And while we had some of the bigger ones that are still around today, we had tons of companies like food.com and, and Webstakes and all these companies that had just raised tens of millions of dollars and then very quickly ran through the money, couldn't get raise their next round of funding. And a lot of the companies that we worked with left us with, with huge receivable bills that were never paid. And at the same time, we had thousands of college students who were essentially marketing these brands on campus, and they wanted their money because, you know, they, they needed their beer and pizza money, and we were kind of stuck. So we ended up selling the business to a company um, in New York called Alloy, um, and that's what kind of got me to New York. And it wasn't really selling the company. They essentially just, you know, assume, assumed our debt um, and allowed us to kind of move to New York. So that's I don't know what happened. I, you know what? I love that you said Webstakes because the reason I came to New York for the first time is I was dating a girl that was working at Webstakes, and you're the first person. Oh, really? You're the first person oh, to well. have mentioned that company that I know <laughs> of in like 20 years. So. There you go. That's throwback. Yeah. Um, just real quick uh, before we move on from that, um, tell me what it was like in terms of. Being an entrepreneur, we've talked to other people about like you know, the easy money, like the the, the Lycoses or the Ebays or whoever the web stakes. Um, is it just a thing like you can have a meeting and sign a contract and they're just throwing money at you? Like everyone had money. Yeah, it was to a spend. gold. It was yeah. a gold rush. Well, first of all, I'd never done anything else, so like these were my first meetings. I remember flying out to Silicon Valley and running a car and driving to all these venture funded companies and they would have like all these boxes, unopened boxes of computers around. And there was a young CEO that was, you know, not that much um, older than me. And they were just, they couldn't spend money fast enough because it was a gold rush. And they thought that the more they spent and the faster they spent it, um, you know, they could be on the cover of industry standard, which was the big magazine back then. So um, that it, I didn't know what to compare it to though. I thought all business was like that. And so for me, it, it didn't really stick out. Um, and then I quickly I learned that that's not really how the real business world works. And I got, a, you know, a, a lesson in school, hard knocks. Do you have a memory of like either a moment or like an event or something where you're like, oh, the the, the worm has turned, like the, the bubble's bursting? Do you, was there something that yeah. told you that? Yeah, I remember we were, one of our biggest clients was food.com. And I don't even know what they did. I think they were the early version of like Seamless. Um, but they were just too early, like a lot of these companies. And I was, I had a business partner at the time and I just landed, um, I believe it was in Washington DC and I had like a Palm trio because that's how you were able to see your right. email. Right. I was like one of the first ones that had it with the antenna kind of, you know, you fold up and you can actually get internet access. I remember seeing, um, a, a note from saying, we just lost food.com. And then the next day when I got, got back to Boston, one, another client, um, who I don't even remember, basically just bailed out on us. And it just would happen one by one. And I was like, what do we do? So, you know, one day we, employees showed up to the front door and we're like, we're not open. You know, we have to do something. We are turning employees away. And I, I literally, I actually had borrowed a couple hundred thousand dollars from my dad who took out like a second mortgage on his house because I'm like, oh, it's just receivables. And thank God we had, a, a, you know, our acquirer assume the debt. It was, it was, you know, a very, very tough time for me you know, when I was 22 years old. Um, and those are, those are the stories that you don't really hear about. Um, but there's way more of those than there are of Mark Cuban, who started the company right. at the same time, became a billionaire. I mean, for every Mark Cuban, there's there's 10,000 of me. 
Well, and um, even that, you know, you're you're an entrepreneur. I mean, the the, the tens of thousands, an entire generation of people that were you know, the the grunts at, at all these companies that suddenly were were gone. Yep, yep, yep. I so, know, and it was gone. So what what do you do personally? So when this happens, and like you said, you're 22 or whatever, 23. Um, so you look around, and and it's a nuclear winter. So like, what do you personally do? So what I had done is. Uh, you know, I had, as soon as we started, gotten on stage a lot of industry conferences and gotten to know a lot of the people in the college marketing or youth marketing industry, which was, which, was, which was a much bigger industry back then than it is now because, you know, agencies that market to college students aren't as much in demand now because of Facebook and tools that can reach these people. And so I just knew a lot of our competitors. So I just started calling them and explaining. A couple of them had already kicked our tires of buying us. And without trying to disclose the actual position our company was in, so they would remain interested, um, had a couple of companies that actually were interested in moving ahead with some type of an acquisition. Um, one of those companies was Student Advantage, who had just gone public. At one point, they reached a billion-dollar valuation. I remember that. Um, and another, yeah, another, the company actually acquired us. was called Ustream Media Networks, which quickly afterwards got acquired by Alloy. So I said Alloy was actually called Ustream Media. And that was the company that actually ended up basically doing an asset purchase, saying, we'll assume your debt. You know, we'll give you guys a signing bonus. Um, you and your top five employees can move to New York and come work for us. So that was um, in December of 2000. So it was, you know, only a year or two after I started my business when I graduated college. And um, I moved to New York, packed up my stuff and started to work for a company and got a salary. And the first day I was there, I remember like look, um, seeing all these proposals and requests for proposals come in from Procter and Gamble and Coca-Cola. And I was starting to think like, I'd, I'd never seen this before, and this is how real companies work. So I quickly got exposed to what a Fortune 500 brick-and-mortar company looked like relative to the you know high-flying startups who were the only companies that my former company had been serving. Um, I, I, I'm moving towards uh, Mr. Youth, but just yep. real quick, um, th this concept of um, serving a youth market or like being a, a horse whisperer to brands to serve a youth market, like that yep. – in my memory of it, like it, basically there was like 20 years, 25 years where it was the baby boomers and that's all you had to, to know about. And then in the 90s, sort of brands had to discover there could be other generations to worry about. And it's first it's Gen X and now we hear all this stuff about, you know, millennials are killing yeah. uh, American cheese and things like that. Just your, yeah. your, your perspective on, you know, sort of making a career out of um, sure. teaching people well, yeah. about youth markets. Yeah, well, I think I think you put it really well. It's been an evolution. You're right. It used to be about just reaching the baby boomers because there was a time when there was only three television stations and the family would gather around at seven o'clock and watch the Ed Sullivan show, right? And in that world, the, the, the parents were making on the spending decisions. So reaching the youth really didn't matter, right? And then a couple of things happened. The 60s and the countercultural revolution gave youth a voice. They didn't have the internet back then, but they had soapboxes to talk about their dismay with big government and big companies, right? And then over time, what started to happen is media became proliferated. So first you had cable TV and you had MTV, and then you start to have proliferation of, of more and more television stations, more and more publications, and then there was more ways for young people on their own to learn about things and create their own brand preferences. So by the time Gen X became of, a, of an age where it was worth targeting, youth marketing kind of became a thing. Um, now, fast forward to today with the millennial generation and now Gen Z, they're more important than ever before because not only do they only have their own brand preference, they have a massive voice. 
they have YouTube and they can have, you know, tens of millions of people watching them and, and their impact is widespread to all generations. So it's kind of become like an inside out game where at first it was targeted to parents because they were the only people who can buy, but now it's only target youth culture because youth culture kind of dictates the future of almost every category and because they're adopting technology and they have that strong voice. Okay. So take me to Mr. Youth. And then I think that leads us sure. into Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what happened at Mr. Youth, I mean, with the uh, advent of Mr. Youth is I was working at this company, Ustream. Um, one day I saw a bunch of bankers and um, people come in. I didn't recognize and it turned out that uh, Ustream was for sale and this other company, Alloy was coming in to buy them. And I just knew that I didn't want my future to be dictated by other people. And like I, I didn't sign up to work for this new company. I, this is, I'm an entrepreneur. What am I doing here? And I just kind of had this moment where I'm like, I'm out. So I called a couple of the clients that I built relationships with and asked if they would be my first client, almost like Jerry Maguire style, who's coming with me. Um, I, I came up with the name Mr. Youth because it was ownable. Everyone who I asked about the name Mr. Youth hated it um, because they thought, but you know what? No one forgot it. Um, and I decided to go ahead and call the company Mr. Youth. And my first clients were Red Bull and Intel. And I, I started this agency out of my apartment. At first, we were doing kids handing out flyers on college campuses, um, you know, taking ads in college newspapers, et cetera. And then a couple of years in, I realized that the best way to reach college students was through other college students. So I created this program where I hired tens of thousands of college students across the country to essentially represent brands on campus. Uh, one of my first major clients was Microsoft, who had hired, um, you know, 400 college students through us to represent, um, you know, Windows 95 and OneNote and all their di different products. And we ended up flying them out to Redmond, Washington and training them. And that was sort of like the onset of our business. And that, that's when uh, we interacted with Facebook for the first time. Do you, do you remember hearing about Facebook for the first time? Yeah, I sure do. So what starts to happen is... Um, we had students at almost every major campus across the country. And a couple of the kids at the Ivy League schools that were part of the Microsoft network, um, I think it was MIT and Penn, were saying, instead of you just having us market Microsoft um, on campus, and you know they were doing some email marketing and things like that at that point, can we promote Microsoft on Facebook? Is that okay? I'm like, well, what's Facebook? And they're like, oh, this, this thing is exploding on our campuses. Everyone's using it. You have to check it out. And I had a guy um, that was working for me named Ari Greenberg um, who went to an Ivy League school, Columbia, and he had just graduated. So he was right out of college. He's like, yeah, you got to see this thing. And he still had his Columbia.edu address. Right. Um, and he was showing it to me. And I'm like, well, I need to get in touch with these people. And, and let, me, let me interrupt because uh, just yeah, to point please. out that, that at that point, you could not use Facebook unless you had an EDU or a, a college-affiliated email address. That's right. And they were only at 15 colleges at that point. So Facebook at this point, this was very early on. I think it was, if I had to time stamp it, I would say it was March 2004. So it was about two years after I started Mr. Youth. Um, and I couldn't get in touch with them. And, and I, wanted to I wanted to figure out a way where I could work with them. Because I knew that this kind of having students on campus was only so scalable. And if I could have students really propel brands through the Internet, I just thought there was something there. So I called, um, the way I got in touch with them is I went into the domain registry. I went to register.com, I typed Facebook, and back then you could see the who is domain registry information, and there was a 617 number. I just dialed it, and Mark Zuckerberg picked up the phone, um, and I, said, I introduced myself. They had heard of us um, because we were doing a lot of stuff at spring break, and we were just 
it very deeply embedded in the college market. And they ended up in my office, I'd say probably three to four days later in New York, we had a tiny office. They were either already going there or maybe they just jumped on the train for this meeting. Um, and he came with his partner, Eduardo, um, to tell us what they were doing at Facebook. And they didn't really have much to show at that point, except for just all the traction that they were having um, on these college campuses they were activated in. Do you, do you know if they had any advertising at that point when they met with you? Yeah, I mean, at that point, they were selling something. They just started selling something called flyers. Um, and flyers were like basically um, built for mostly local small businesses. Um, and they were spent, and the small businesses were spending anywhere between just called 25 and $50 a day, um, basically to have um, an ad targeted towards a specific college campus. So their first, their first go to market model was, was compete with the local college newspapers. So if you were a local pizza place or a laundry mat, you could buy ads to target kids at, at that specific campus for that specific versioning of, of Facebook. Because at first, Facebook was really broken down by college. So that's what they were doing. And after they told me how well it was doing, I said, well, would you guys take ads from big brands? Because we're, we're working with Microsoft and Dunkin' Donuts and Victoria's Secret. And they're like, yeah, we've been looking. We've been talking to a bunch of companies um, you know, to hire somebody to actually do this. We're about to raise a big round of capital, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay, well, I might have a couple opportunities for you guys down the road. And in the meantime, can we actually have our students, um, you know, uh, promote our client over Facebook? And they're like, sure, just have them log in and do it. There was no, like, API or anything at that time. Um, and it was that simple. So it was good that I met them, but there was no partnership to be had. They had a pretty linear business model. In that first meeting, um do you remember, did, did Eduardo take the lead or did Mark? I'm, I'm, I'm asking because you remember the whole narrative is, is that Eduardo was the guy that was trying to make it into a business at that point. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I had a more clear memory. I actually searched through old emails and I don't have the emails from my, that, that, that business anymore um, that, that go that far back. But um, I remember Eduardo being more talkative, um, but I remember not even really knowing which, who's, whose name was who. Because they were just two young kids, yeah, right? Yeah. Like now we look at them as so. But I remember, um, it, you know, in my memory that Eduardo was definitely more talkative because I remember one of the guys there was super awkward, and that was definitely Mark in retrospect. Um, and then there was a couple of follow-up emails, and you know, I would say about thirty days later, I had um, an, an ad for them because we were just launching Victoria's Secret Pink, which was, um, you know, now is a multi-billion-dollar. Um, business, but it was Victoria's Secret's entryway into the youth marketplace, and we were trying to promote it on campus. So we um, ended up buying a couple ads um, on some of the target campuses where we were launching a student rep program from them, directly from them. And I had a follow-up conversation with Eduardo where he asked if I'd be interested in joining the team um, to be essentially their salesperson mm. or helping them in creating a partnership. And I remember we were going back and forth, but we were so busy with the Victoria's Secret launch, we, we didn't really pursue it. And around June of that year, um, a friend of mine, um, John Fees, who prior was at Student Advantage, which is one of the companies that was looking at purchasing the Magma Group, um, was also talking to them. Um, they had a business at that point called Y2M. And what Y2M was doing was they were essentially creating the digital version of college newspapers everywhere. And John actually did take the step to actually create a formal partnership with Facebook where they not only would start to sell ads for the digital college newspapers, but also for Facebook. And that was in June of 2004. There was a woman that was working for John named Trisha Black, 
who really took the bull by the horns and really started to become an early believer of Facebook. And at that point in June or July of 2004, they were probably at 25 to 50 campuses and she was doing all the selling. And then at the end of that year, uh, you know, Eduardo called John Fees and basically said, we want to hire Trisha. And they actually paid, I don't know what the amount was. I want to say it was over $100,000 to buy Trisha out of her non-compete with Y2M. And she ended up becoming their first salesperson. Right. Um, and she was, I think she was in Malibu now. And <laughs> she was amazing. And she, she really helped them get going until they hired a guy named Kevin Collarin um, in 2005, who I also knew who ended up being like really their first enterprise salesperson. He established, he was employee number six, I wanted to say, and he established their New York sales office. And he was with them up until they went IPO. Yeah, I've, I've tried to get both of them on the show so far un, unsuccessfully. Um, let me take you back to that first ad buy uh, for Victoria's Secret. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember how successful it was? What kind of results? I remember that we were given a budget by, uh, by the client. I want to say it was like $10,000 to just amplify what we were doing. And just the concept of like digital analytics back then was nowhere near what it was today. So it looked cool. <laughs> and it, when we showed it to the client and there was not, I don't even, I think it was more of a branding based ad. I don't think there was like a click through. And so there was not, we didn't really measure success the same way. It was, and it was enabled you know, my contact at Victoria's Secret to tell their bosses they were doing something that was kind of cutting edge. Um, but that was basically it. So well, it was successful. And it was successful for us in that we recommended a new tool because back then companies were just trying to figure it all out. So, there were, the, you know, right now it, it was a completely different world there is today where everything is ROI, performance-based, you know, bottom funnel. Back then, yes, people cared about cost per impression and things of that nature, but that was really it. It was, a, it was, it was, it was about aggregating eyeballs. Well, I was going to say the same way you buy in a newspaper, you know? right? You're basically selling banner ads at this point, right? Like it's it, exactly it's not, it it's not yeah. social media yet, as you would think of buying an ad on social media today, or direct response, or right. direct response. Even banner ads can be direct response, where it would lead to a, a click through or attribution for a sign up or something like that. That that, that even a direct uh, Victoria's Secret is a direct marketer. Um, that you know they, they sell directly to the consumer. This was about really creating that brand awareness for a new youth brand that they were building. We didn't really have a, a drive, uh, you know, a drive to retail aspect. Um, we did with, with the flyers we handed out on the streets, but not with these particular bannerets. Um, so, you, and go ahead, go on. please. No, no, you go ahead. I was, I was about to say, so, and then Trisha kind of took the reins. I mean, she, after we sold those first couple ads and the other one we sold in was for uh, Dunkin' Donuts. I think I remember Dunkin' Donuts was about $2,500. And we also sold an ad targeting kids at Columbia and NYU uh, later that year um, for, the, I want to say it was the Museum of Natural History who would just like launch his laser light show. That was like the end of 2004. And then after Kevin joined in 2005, who I had known forever, he went to school in Boston at Babson and really smart guy. They just got furious. You know, th then they raised their next round of capital. They start to build stuff out. And, you know, then they were kind of off to the races. You blink for a second and they're a whole different size of a company. So it was really just a small moment in time where, um, our business really was in the heart of where where they were really focused. Um, and, you know, it, it's been amazing to watch from afar their ascent. I, I have to imagine that in this time period, 2004, 2005, you were also working with, like, MySpace as well, because MySpace was bigger at that point. 
MySpace was bigger, but it was more teen at that point. Like we were mm. focused. We didn't go to team marks to 2007, right. 2008. We didn't really do a whole lot on MySpace. It was much younger. Um, at least that was our impression of it. So we kind of skipped that and really started to embrace the, the next phase of our activation on Facebook was building Facebook apps. So that's, you know, they launched this basically the ability of an open API and to create right. Facebook apps which were really terrible user experiences where you had to go to their page, but it had kind of social built in. So we built something for Dell called Be the Campus Rockstar, where basically every time you shared a Dell ad with your friends, you'd get points. And whichever campus had the most points, we would have a concert of like a top four band actually performed. Um, and we did that same idea in different iterations for like three or four different companies. And it was very successful because it was kind of like a great way to spur viral marketing in a very early stage. And that it was a really good use of the app functionality that Facebook had created. Uh, to, to the best of your ability to, to put yourself back in that time period and not with retrospect, like looking back now today, what you know today, but um, uh -huh. just your impressions of Facebook, like would you have, would you have imagined in 2004, 2005, 2006 even, that Facebook would be, you know, a half a trillion dollar company, that it would be as successful as it was? Well, I mean, I remember being at Neutrogena and, and their headquarters in Los Angeles where we were launching a new acne product targeting college age girls. And I remember trying to convince the client and their agency that MySpace was done. It was 2005, 2006, and that Facebook was gonna grow. I kind of knew that Facebook was capturing the network effect, that kind of the mechanics of how they created their product had just much more um, longer staying power than MySpace did. I only looked at it relative to MySpace or other companies that were kind of doing the same thing. I never knew at that point, you know, there was Yahoo and MSN and these big uh, early titans of the internet, which were basically aggregating eyeballs. And it was hard to see back then that those companies weren't going to be the ones that won. You know, it was, so to answer your question, no, I, 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 I wish I could say, yes, I knew all along. If I knew all along, I probably would have taken the job when they offered it to me. <laughs> right. um, but I didn't, um, I was sticking with my agency. Um, but so that's kind of my best answer for it. Um, they seem like smart guys. They were from Harvard. I mean, you add that together uh, to be honest with you, I met with a thousand other companies that were startups and, and, and I did definitely have the sting of getting burned by all these digital startups in my prior agency, which probably and here I am working with these big brands. So to me, it was almost going backwards, starting to work with startups again, because what, what I had seen. And I think that probably impacted the way I looked at it as well. I was always a big believer of digital and, and their business model, but that didn't mean I was going to throw away when I was building my agency. Well, um, I'm going to stipulate that your, your agency and your, your career has been very successful uh, su subsequently, and you, you remain a youth demographic expert. Um, just uh, to, to close out, um, tell, us, tell us what you're up to today and, and uh, what you're interested in today. Um, so right now I'm running a software company called Suzy. Um, Suzy actually emanated from Mr. Youth because Mr. Youth and the, from all that student rep work created a piece of software called CrowdTap, which was built to manage and measure the college student reps. Um, then word of mouth marketing kind of took off. So we spun out CrowdTap into its own venture funded company. Um, I would go and build my agency and it was acquired by the Publicis Group in 2011. And after I left Publicis, I rejoined CrowdTap and essentially pivoted the business model um, over the last couple of years into a marketing intelligence platform called Suzy. So that's really what I'm focused on right now. So the remnants of everything we just talked about actually still live today, which is fascinating when you think about it.
And what did you say? Uh, what generation is, is up and coming now? Gen Z. Gen Z. Okay. And then what's after Gen Z? Um, Gen Z, it, I, I don't think it's been named yet. Well, You're get on that. Person. Get on that. I know. I might. I should probably coin it, and then I can be the focus of your next Internet History Podcast 20 years from now. Right, exactly. All right. Uh, <laughs> Matt Britton, uh, thanks for coming on the show and remembering all that for us. Thanks so much. Pleasure being on the show. If you like what you've heard on this episode, please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book that was based on this podcast, How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone, by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. <laughs>